You know, when I was a kid, I really didn't like Sunday school that much. It's true confession time here. I didn't like going to Sunday school, so it's odd I entered this profession. But what I didn't like was you had to sit through that one-hour church service, and after that, you're ushered into the church basement for another hour of Sunday school. But there was one Sunday a year where I loved Sunday school. It was the pinnacle of wonderful. Once a year, we had a special guest come to our Sunday school. She was known as the chalk artist. She would come with her big easel and put it up here on the stage. And then she'd take out a big old canvas and put it up there. And every kid, we loved that. There was nothing better than watching her for the next half hour take all of her chalk and tell us a story while she drew this picture on the easel. And to make it even better, there was usually a pianist in the background playing some music and singing songs. It was just wonderful. I looked forward to that day each and every year. For a seven-year-old in the 70s, that was Pixar. It didn't get any better than that. that. That was like amazing that she could draw on there and do that stuff for the half hour. But that what made it even better was what she did when she was done drawing that picture. I mean, for a seven-year-old, this was as good as Moses parting the Red Sea. It was that powerful. She would go behind this easel, and on top there was this little box of lights. And she would turn on one of the lights. And suddenly, out of nowhere, images started to appear on the screen that weren't there before. She would flick on a switch, and suddenly there would be the manger of Jesus. And you're like, now how did that get on there? I mean, we all watched her draw this picture, but suddenly when she turns on a light, you can see something that was there, but you couldn't see it. Oh, and it gets better. Then she'd turn on another light, and there would be another image. It could be like maybe the cross that Jesus was on. And we all sat there going, how did she do that? We watched her, then it gets better. There's a third light she switched on, and there it is. The stones rolled away from the tomb. And suddenly you have this whole other story on the board that you couldn't see it until the light shined on it. None of us knew how she did that. How did that cross appear and that rock appear? How did none of us could figure out any of that stuff? But what we learned that there was two dimensions to what she was drawing. There was what's obvious, then there's something hidden. There was, a, there was a visible part of her art, and then there was an invisible part of her art that could only be seen once the light was shining on it. And that was just so fun to see something that was invisible come to light when a light was shining on it. And as you can see, I remember those days of Sunday school. That still excites me right now, thinking about just watching her do that. And you know, I was thinking this week, I thought, you know, that should be the same excitement and anticipation that I have every time I come to church, or every time I open the Bible, or every time I go to a book study with other believers, that there should be an anticipation and expectation that God would shine his light on something that I haven't seen before and bring it to life. There should be an anticipation and expectation that I would see a truth that maybe I couldn't see before without the light shining on it. 
See, in the book of John, Jesus makes a big statement. He says, I am the light of the world. And all through scriptures, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. And what Jesus is saying, I will light up the hidden things to help you understand the truth of who I am and what I came to do. There's this beautiful part of Jesus that he comes to light the things that are hidden. And see, once this, this, this canvas was lit and the light came on it, suddenly you could see the truth of the gospel story that was hidden underneath and suddenly it came forward. But the only way that could come forward was by light. It's significant that we watch the light shine on the word of God. See, there's a lot at stake for us if we miss God shining his light on the word or we miss experiencing God shining his light when we gather together in community. See, what's at stake is sometimes we just look at things as the way they appear, but we never see them the way they truly are. Or we get so caught up with the visible that we miss what is invisible that God wants to show us. See, each of us craves to know what's invisible. There's a lot of invisible things that we desire to know really well. See, the core question that all of us ask ourselves is, why was I born? Why do I exist? Why is, what is my purpose? We all want to know these invisible things about who we are or how we are. We all want to know those. And in fact, every single religion is trying to explain to us those things. Every religion tries to explain to us where you came from, what is your purpose, and where are you going. But as followers of Jesus, we know that the only true answers to that is found in a committed relationship with Jesus Christ. And even the very first book of the Bible, the very first pages of the Bible in Genesis 1, it makes it clear that we were created in the image of God for His glory. Right there on the first pages of the Bible, you understand our purpose. But so often we get caught up in the narrative in our culture and we think life is about success, about careers, about 401ks, about planning for retirement. While all that stuff is part of our life, that is not the purpose of our life. It's pretty clear from even the first page of the Bible. You don't even have to get very far in the Bible to realize that our purpose in life is to proclaim to the world who is God. That's what we're called to do. Tell the world who is God. It's that simple. The first page of the Bible, you figure out our purpose is to proclaim Christ to the world. One of my favorite chapters of the Bible is John 9. I love the story. And let me read to you the first few verses, first 11 verses. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been, born, had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his parents' disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his parents or his... His sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the task assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. 
Then he spit on the ground, made mud from the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Shiloh. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was. And others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Shiloh and wash yourself. So I went and I washed and now I can see. I love this story in the Bible about this man born blind 2,000 years ago. And to be blind at that time was very difficult for the obvious reasons. And then you add on top of that, society didn't have a safety net for people with disabilities like being blind. There was not a social system in place to take care of this man or was, there wasn't the financial support that this man needed. So he spent a lot of his time begging And in that culture, the whole idea that if you were blind, you obviously had done something wrong. Or maybe you didn't do something wrong, but your parents must have done something wrong. So that's why the disciples looked at Jesus and said, who sinned? The disciples were looking, who can we blame for this man being blind? And you think about it, we all kind of do that in life. We look for someone or something that we can blame because we think that will help us make sense of the situation. I mean, think about it. If somebody tells you they get in a car accident, you're listening to it, and the whole time you're kind of thinking, I wonder whose fault that was. And then at the right time, you can ask them. Or if you hear a person saying to you, yeah, I don't feel well, I'm sick, and then you wonder, who'd you catch it from? How did that happen to you? We all kind of have this idea in the back of our mind. We need somebody to blame. So the disciples are asking Jesus, well, who can we blame for this? The disciples know it has to be the parents or it has to be the son. They're looking for someone to blame. Because for them, there's no other explanation for why this man could be blamed. See, in this chapter of the Bible, Jesus is starting to explain to his disciples an understanding of pain and suffering. See, up until this point, the disciples really didn't understand why there was pain and suffering. As one commentator says, the book of John begins to explain why one sinful person can suffer more than another sinful person. See, there's another story that's going on in John 9, and that is to help us understand the role of pain and the suffering and to understand why, why one follower of Jesus could suffer more than another follower of Jesus. It's a hidden layer of the story that we all want to know. That's one of those invisible questions that we all want to know. Why pain? Why suffering? Why do some seem to experience more of it? So Jesus says something rather shocking in verse 3. I don't think anybody expected Jesus to say, no one sinned. Jesus said his parents didn't sin, the boy didn't sin, no one sinned. Instead, Jesus says, this happened so the power of God could be seen in him. Nobody expected that. What Jesus basically said was that God made him blind. 
I used to hate this verse. Because when our oldest son got diagnosed with his challenges, I hated this verse. I didn't want God to be part of the formula of why Nick was getting diagnosed with many challenges. I didn't want that part of the scenario. See, I was looking for some cosmic battle that we sort of lost. And if I could figure out or blame the reason Nick had so many challenges, then in my prayers I could overcome whatever force caused this to happen. That's what I was looking for. I thought, okay, Nick, you're diagnosed. We'll just pray hard enough. We'll figure out what caused it and we'll find victory and you'll be healed. But in this verse... It wasn't some kind of cosmic battle that caused this man to be blind and said, God's saying, I'll take the blame for it. I'll take the hit for it. So that was a frustrating verse for me because I wanted a way to get Nick healed and I thought I could have a, an enemy, but yet I was up against God and his will and his purposes. And that was a difficult for me to experience and for Becky to experience. But over time, I've learned to love this verse. When I understand the full meaning of this verse, I love this verse. This verse is full of comfort and it's full of security and it's full of hope. Because in this verse, God does more than issue an executive pardon to the family and say nobody's sin, nobody's guilty. God took the blame for this man being born blind. He took the blame. He said to the parents, you're not at fault. He said to the son, you're not at fault. God said, if you need to blame somebody for this, you put the blame on me. See, already in the book of John, you're starting to see the significance of Jesus going to the cross, that he's saying, you can put your guilt and your sin and your shame and the blame, you can put it on me. It's a little bit of a foretaste of what Jesus is going to do. And could you imagine for this family the relief it was for them to hear God saying, I'll take the blame. I'll take the hit. Because for as long as that boy had been alive, his parents had felt guilty. They felt like we have done something wrong. It must be some sin we did before he was born that he is born blind. Or it must have been some sin that this child did even while he's in the womb that would cause him to be born blind so that couple, that family had lived for years thinking, what did I do so wrong? Why am I such a bad person? Why was I born so wrong? Not only that, but they were shunned in the community. The people in the community at the time, they weren't accepting and loving of this family. They treated them as others. And now, after years of suffering, these parents experience the truth. Because as Jesus lights up the truth, they see a deeper meaning to the story that they're experiencing. See, what they realize is that there is in all pain has a purpose. See, that was hidden below the surface that the light had to shine up, that there is always a purpose in your pain. That was news to that family. That was news to the disciples that something as hard as a man being born blind could actually be used by God for divine purpose. 
See, a lot of us sit here and we wonder, why did these things in my life happen to me? We wonder, why, why do I have these painful memories in my background that I, I don't seem to get over? We wonder, why am I this way? Or we wonder, why do I have these certain deficits? It seems like other people are good at things that I seem to continue to struggle in this one area. And we all struggle with maybe our own challenges, our own disability, or maybe our own mental health challenges or obstacles we have going on. And we all wonder, why? Or maybe we experience having a child born with some kind of blindness and we wonder, why? And we wrestle with these questions no different than these parents wrestled in the book of John. But I love what John Bloom says about this chapter. He said, the purpose of this man's disability was not punishment, it was proclamation. The purpose of this man's disability was not punishment it was proclamation the purpose for this man's blindness would be seen in the testimony that he would share someday about the goodness of god your testimony is important your testimony is powerful your testimony needs to be told because your testimony tells to the world that your story is not punishment, but it's proclamation of the goodness of God. Your story is a testimony of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. It is an announcement of who God is and what he came to do. When you share your testimony, you are allowing God to shine his light on the canvas of your life in what is unseen can be seen as a proclamation to the world that your God is good, that your God is faithful, and that your God is kind and loving and compassionate. See, we might be a small church with just a small group of people here. But when we all come together with our stories, our proclamation is loud. And it's powerful, and it's effective, and it can reach more people than we ever could expect. But the problem that the disciples were experiencing that day is nobody knew there was purpose in their pain until that day when Jesus steps forward and says, no one sinned. That was a dramatic day to hear nobody sinned, but this is for the power of God can be displayed in this man's life. 2,000 years ago, nobody thought the power of God could be displayed in a blind man's life. Nobody did. But God chooses a person nobody expected and said, there's my power. Some of you are wondering if you have God's power in your life. I'd say, do you have pain in your life? Because if you have pain in your life, you can expect God's power to even be greater. But God's light has to shine on the canvas of your life. You have to look beneath the surface to see what God's doing. If we only look at the surface, we're going to see pain. But we have to look at the proclamation that's underneath all the pain. It's easy to miss the truth. 
It's easy to miss the significance of who we are and what we are called to do. It's easy to just focus on the things that we have done wrong. It's easy to fail to see the proclamation that God has for us to do. Over the past month or two, we've been talking about uh, discipleship to Jesus and what it looks like. We've looked at what does it mean to be an authentic follower of Jesus. And part of being an authentic follower of Jesus is discover our identity and our calling. Knowing who we are and what God has called us to do is a profound truth that every one of us needs to discover. But sometimes we miss that. We're so focused on what we've done wrong. We're so focused on our pain that we forget what God has called us to do. So I think it's so interesting. When Jesus healed this man, what did he use? He used spit and dirt. Like, really? Spit and dirt. That just, just doesn't sound very welcoming. You kind of expected Jesus might have used flower petals and cucumbers. You know, something a little bit more organic, a little bit more earthy, something that just a little bit more sanitary, kind of would have expected that, but he uses dirt and spit. Dirt's not very clean. There's a little gravel and dirt. That had to hurt that man a little bit when Jesus is putting that mud over his eyes. I mean, that would get in your eyes. I mean, the man's blind, but he would still experience pain. That had to be a little abrasive when he's putting mud on his face. It's like, wh- why'd you do it that way? So I think some of what Jesus is doing is he's reenacting the creation story. We know in the creation story, God goes to the ground and picks up d- dust and forms it into a human and breathes life into it. And what Jesus' role is now to take the humans that have been hurt by sin and bring restoration to their life. So he kind of takes the same ingredients of the mud and his breath in it and puts it on the man's eyes. But then Jesus does something really strange. He asks this man to participate in the miracle. Basically, he tells this man to do something very strange. And to be honest, this isn't the first time in the Bible that Jesus would ask somebody to do something strange. What Jesus did is after he put that mud in the man's eyes, he said, okay, now you need to go across town to a specific pool and wash it off. Why didn't Jesus just snap his fingers and say, be healed? But no, Jesus put mud on his eyes and then told him he had to go across town to a specific pool and wash it off. Again, there's another deeper meaning in the book of John, something underneath the surface, is that Jesus is trying to say obedience is important, even when it doesn't make sense to you. See, sometimes we're willing to be obedient when we can understand it, but Jesus is saying to this man, no, you're going to have to be obedient to me, even though you don't understand what I'm telling you to do. So this man had to go across town to wash this dirt from his face, but This man has a very big problem. He's blind. Someone's going to have to bring him across town to that pool. This man's going to need help from his community. First of all, this man has to decide, do I really believe that Jesus is true, that his word is true? Because if I'm going to believe that his word's true, then I'm actually going to have to follow his instructions. Now, if I don't believe his word is true, I'm just going to go home and say, that was stupid. But this man knows that Jesus is true. But this man knows that if he is going to get 
to the pool, his community is going to have to help him. See, we need Jesus' power, but we also need a community that can help us get to the destination that Jesus has called us to. This man could have never got to that pool on his own. He never would experience having his eyesight returned if he didn't say to one of his friends, would you help me? That man had to display humility and say to somebody else, would you help me to where I need to go? See, living in community is so important, not only for us, but to help another person experience all that God has for them. That's why we need to take very seriously the fact that we were created in the image of God, that we are image bearers. See, it doesn't matter if you really don't understand what it means to be an image bearer. It doesn't really matter what you've done wrong in your life or what you have done right in your life. The fact is we are all image bearers created in the image in the likeness of God. In Genesis 1, 27 and 28, it says it. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. See, the big command in here is rule. That's at the heart of what the scripture is saying. It's saying to rule like a king would do, but we know that God is the king. We know that we're not overtaking what God is doing. Instead, we represent God on earth. What our calling is to do is to make the invisible God visible. That's what we're called to do, to make the invisible God visible. And we can only do that with the light of Christ shining on us so we can be visible to the world. Our role is to show other people what God is like. We show other people love and peace and grace and gentleness We show other people mercy. We listen to other people so that other people look at us and say, so that's what a Christian is like. So that's what God is like. So that's what Jesus is like. That's what the Holy Spirit is like. That is our calling. It's to show people what the invisible God looks like. See, being created in the image of God is two parts. It's part of who I am and what I'm called to do. A lot of times we try to separate who I am and what I'm called to do, but it's hard to separate those when you're created in the image of God because who you are is what you do. It just naturally flows and it naturally happens. And see, when God has called us to be created in his image, he said every single part of us is to reflect God to the world. Not just one part of us, not just the part of us that goes to church, but every single part of us. See, to represent God becomes our vocation. To represent God is our vocation. That is our job. That is what we do. Our vocation is to represent God. Your job or your career, that just might be the visible thing that you do. But the invisible thing that you do is you represent God in every single thing that you do. You might sell cars for a living, but your vocation is really to represent God. You might be a teacher, but your real vocation 
is to represent God to everybody in your classroom. Whatever job you do, whatever role you do in the marketplace, or whatever volunteer work you do, or whatever hobbies you do, or whatever clubs that you're involved in, everything that you do when you go to those clubs or your job is to represent God to the people that are there with you. We honor God everywhere we go. We display God to the greeter at Meyer grocery store. We display God to the bank teller. We display God to the nurse that takes care of us. We display God to every single person we come in contact with. Our job is when we meet other people that we would turn the light on for them to see who Christ really is. That we would be that reflection. But sometimes we think... My job is to sell cars, or my job is to be an accountant, or my job is this. No, your vocation, your job is to represent Christ in every single thing that you do. That's what we're called to do. And sometimes that pain in your life, that discomfort in your life, that's a platform that God will give you to show his love and compassion and mercy to other people. Sometimes the discomfort in your life is your platform for, pro for proclamation. Because the pain that you've experienced or what you've learned from the pain that you experience is what other people want to hear. Other people want to know how did you find resolution to your pain. So the big question is how do you do that on a daily basis? I think, number one, we've got to remember everywhere we go, people are looking at us and saying, is that what God looks like? Whatever you do or post or say, people are saying, is that what God is like? I like this one, Pastor, Pastor Matt Caps. He gives three little, three little instructions on three questions to ask when we walk into certain groups. I think these are in your notes. It's not an exhaustive list. I think it's just a list to help you kind of think, how do you represent Christ? So the first question to say is, what is God's intention? Whatever group you come in, what is God's intention for this group? God, would you show me? How, why did you put me in this position? What do you want me to do while I'm in this position? The next question he says is, in what ways of life, in what areas of human life have been distorted by human sin? And the third question he says is, how can I bring Christian healing to all these areas of life? To ask ourselves a question when we're in our groups or in our job or profession or volunteering, God, how do you want to interact with the people that you put me in community with? And God, in what ways have these people been hurt by sin? Or maybe what pain have they experienced in their life? And how can I bring healing to these people who are experiencing pain and discomfort. See, when Jesus met the blind man, he knew that that family did not understand that they were created in the image of God. Because they thought their image was just sinful. They had done something so bad that they weren't good enough for anything. And he knew that that family had been hurt by the wrong ideas in that culture. And so he wanted to bring healing to the man and show him love and compassion. 
But also Jesus knew that he, this man needed to have other people walk with him to the pool to wash his eyes. See, our vocation is to proclaim Christ to the world. And we take every opportunity that God gives to us. Our pain is not punishment. Our pain is a platform to declare to the world how good God is. But it's easy to get distracted because the world likes to put labels on us and say, well, you're an accountant or you're a teacher or you're a car salesman or you're artistic or you're cool or you're not cool or you're good at that or you're not good at that. And so often we live our life just trying to be the best of the label that somebody has put on us. And God's saying, that's not your vocation. Your vocation is to be an image bearer. And so not to get distracted by the world, what labels the world would like to put on us. That's what we get to do. That's our calling. That is our gifting. To explain to the world who we are. Or who God is. We explain to the world who God is and from the platform of any pain that you've experienced. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the God who turns pain into a proclamation. That, Lord, there is a purpose for every single thing that we have experienced or gone through in our life. And God, I know some people that are listening to me might be thinking right now, I'm not too sure. God, I pray that you administer to them by your kindness and by your gentleness and by your tenderness. God, I pray for anybody who's been hurt by a community that says to them, you must have done something really wrong to experience what you've experienced today. God, I pray that you'd set us free from any lies we believe about ourselves or why we are in the situation that we are in. But God, I pray that you'd help us to hear the words of Jesus in the third verse where he says, this is so the power of God can be displayed in your life. Lord, I thank you that you want to display your power in each person here in their life. God, we ask that you would do that. God, I pray that each of us would understand and experience your power in our life so we can proclaim to the world your goodness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.